Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is March the 6th. 2022. Um, it's a Sunday in San Francisco, Sunday still for most of you around the world. One story continues to dominate the news today, which accounts for our Sunday show, uh, Ukraine, of course. Uh, according to the New York Times, the Ukrainian uh, uh, president uh, Zelensky is urging resistance as the shelling halts the evacuations. A lot of the stories are human stories of suffering, of of people being killed, I guess, of some people might even argue mass murder. But the political element, whilst a little bit more abstract, is as interesting and important, perhaps, as, as the human element. Um, the New York Times has a piece today about how the war in Ukraine holds a warning for the world order, whatever that means. It suggests that there's some life left for, the liberal, for, for, for global liberalism, but not that much life. Um, there's also a piece about how the West marshaled a stunning show of unity against Russia. And I'm wondering whether that unity against Russia is also, in a sense, ideological. It's certainly political as well as geostrategic. Um, capitalism, or at least global capitalism, seems to be pulling out of Russia. Visa and MasterCard, for example, suspended operations. So the financial operating system, if you like, of global capitalism is uh, withdrawing from Russia. We're going, in a sense, back to the Cold War, but a, a Cold War in a globalized world, which adds to the surreal nature of the situation. Uh, Francis Fukuyama, of course, who wrote um, The End of History back in 1989, wrote a big piece in the Financial Times this weekend about Putin's war on what he calls um, the liberal order. Uh, the Guardian, uh, as, as, it, as it tends to do, has written a piece about how Putin has become the pinup for far-right uh, white nationalists of one kind or another. So I'm wondering whether we have increasingly a division of the world between the liberal world order, perhaps the old world order, and a new authoritarian nationalist world. Um, there's an interesting book. Uh, a lot of work has been done, of course, before Ukraine on the rise of liberalism. One of my guests today is Renata Ewitz. She's one of the editors of the Routledge Handbook of Illiberalism. She's also a faculty member at the Central European uh, University, which relocated from Budapest to Vienna. And I'm thrilled that uh, Renata is joining us um, from uh, Budapest. Uh, Renata, uh, thank you so much for, for uh, coming on to the show in these busy and troubling times. Um, to what extent are these ideological divisions between a liberal world order, perhaps a liberal old world order, and a new authoritarian network? Are they real as the, uh, as the Ukrainian crisis tragedy unfolds? Well, Andrew, thank you very much for having me. And I would probably challenge you on whether, whether we are talking about ideological clashes. 
because if you are looking for a coherent illiberal ideology, we won't find one. And you get illiberalism's practitioners off the hook terribly easily because they won't fit your definition of, of illiberalism. Rather, when, when we talk about illiberal rulers, including Hungary's Viktor Orban, they are engaging in a set of political practices that are not, not simply antithetical to liberal democracy, but are actually symbiotic and parasitic. So it was in 1997 when Farid Zakaria called uh, attention to, to the rise of illiberal democracies. And in a way, we, we just see illiberal practices play out on a global scale. And we see with, with the war in, uh, in Ukraine started by Russia and supported by, by Russia's friends uh, as illiberal Democrats well-networked playing a game on a, on a global scale. There were demonstrations um, uh, over the weekend in Belgrade, pro-Russian Serbs marching. Uh, there have been, and um, we've talked about this in previous shows, uh, a lot of support for Putin outside the West. What do you make of that, these demonstrations in Belgrade, support for Putin in the Middle East, in India, uh, in much of Africa? Well, there is certainly support for him also within the EU when, when you look at Bulgaria not being as enthusiastic as, as say, Germany. And that's just a, a sign that the the type of vision of the world and the good life that uh, that president putin is is promoting has plenty plenty of appeal around the world the problem is that it also has an appeal within within the european union the hungarian government has not been particularly particularly enthusiastic when it came to opposing russia supporting the european sanctions against russia uh, so you can see that there is plenty of reluctance, even within the EU. You're in Hungary at the moment, in Budapest. Um, we had your Central European University colleague, Dorit Giver, on the show a few months ago in, in 2021, talking about what she calls the auto-nationalism of Hungary, uh, orchestrated, of course, by Viktor Orban. What's the mood in Budapest at the moment? Um, uh, Renata, uh, are people nervous, worried, sheepish? Is there a, an element of embarrassment about where this is all going? Well, in order to be able to, to speak to you, I'm missing out on attending a, a rally convened by the United Opposition. So I'm actually making a great sacrifice and not but not, not exercising. Well, I my, owe you, Renata. I, I owe you big time. Thank you so much. So what you, you do need to be aware of is that on the 3rd of April, Hungary is heading into a general election uh, where the stakes are whether to, to re-elect Viktor Orban as prime minister again, or, or whether to vote for the candidate of the, uh, of the united opposition, a political outsider, an independent local mayor uh, who is supported by six opposition parties, but he doesn't have a party of his own. And I believe that the, the war in Russia is just illustrating the, the stakes of living in a constitutional democracy. And the fact that Prime Minister Orban is not distancing himself fully from Russia is 
a perfect illustration of, of these stakes to, to Hungarian voters, at least to the ones who are planning on attending the rally or are attending the rally. I'm a big fan, as regular viewers and listeners of the show know, of, of academics at the Central European University. Um, we even did a show last week on uh, George Soros, although we didn't touch so much on the university. But last week, we also did a show with Mercy Kelaus. Kizilowski and Ina Melnikovska uh, on what we called the West moral failure. And I'm thrilled that Masse, um, who is in Vienna, uh, is also uh, joining us today. Masse, do you agree with, um, with Renata about the muddiness of the ideological architecture of the world today is is the Ukrainian crisis helping to clarify things or is it muddying them even more? Uh, hi, thanks thanks so much. Uh, how can we agree we are academics? We can't agree on what the weather is. Yeah, that's your business. If you don't, if you all agree, you're out of a job, right? Yeah, uh, but but actually, I, 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 I do not agree. I have a, a, a paper in press uh, on... With, with a co-author from, from, from Poland um, on precisely what we believe is a unifying ideology of, uh, of uh, illiberal Democrats and authoritarians of today. So perhaps we, we can have a nice debate, Renata, in your Democracy Institute on this. Um, but uh, I, think, I think there is a very clear ideology. This ideology is a mix of white privilege, uh, patriarchy, uh, ethno-nationalism. All the stuff must say most of, most of my audience doesn't like. Is that a bit convenient, too easy, too clean? I, I, I think uh, since Occam's razor, we think that simple theories are better than more complex ones. So... I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily a, a good counter argument against a theory uh, that it's simple mm, and and show me an autocrat that does not fit uh, the model that I have just sketched. It's 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 basically the idea of. Uh, certain hierarchies in our societies which were taken for granted for a long time, but are no longer taken for granted because we won the debate. And because we, we meaning the, the West. Well, we meaning progressives. We won the debate. And that's why the other side is no longer interested in debating. They've taken their ball home, in other words, because they can't debate or they're not able to, or they're simply not interested. They can't win the argument think about all the defeats in front of the US Supreme Court uh, before it was taken by uh, you know authoritarian extremists appointed by Trump the, the the right couldn't win an argument that there is a social harm from gay marriage because there is none I mean, there is a reality there. So you are, we can all almost quote-unquote empathize with those poor sexists 
and racists and ethno-nationalists who can't come up with a rational argument justifying their position. So then they want to close the shop on the debate, which we experience at CU firsthand. Well, let's bring uh, let's bring uh, Renata back in. As I said, she um, is the co-author or the co-editor of the Routledge Handbook of Illiberalism. Uh, Renata, perhaps you might define illiberalism for us because it's still a bit of a slippery word. What in your mind does it mean? Well, uh, it's it's easier to define it in terms of uh, that this is not anti-liberalism. So this is not a denial of liberalism per se, but it is certainly a denial of individual liberty and individual autonomy to to live one's own life according to one's own definition of, of the good life. Uh, it also, illiberal, illiberalism can embrace certain elements of constitutional democracy when it suits it well, like regular elections. And if these regular elections have to appear a little bit competitive in order for their local appeal, that can also be arranged. Think about Hungary or Poland. When I when I said to when I said earlier to Maciej that illiberal Democrats are not particularly interested in polishing uh, a clean and academically neat definition of illiberal ideology. Uh, what I did mean by, by, by this is that if we scratch any elements closer, what he was, he was mentioning, we will, we will find plenty of, of, of divergence. So in the case of, of Prime Minister Orban, who is a, an illiberal Christian Democrat, when it comes to Christian, it doesn't really matter if it's Calvinist or Catholic uh, or, or for that bit, uh, even even it, 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 certain elements of Eastern Orthodox Christian, Christianity fit so long as it, it works uh, to, to support practices that limit women's access to, to re uh, reproductive rights and also redefine traditional gender wars. Uh, other illiberals will, will adopt uh, Hinduism or, or Eastern Orthodoxy much closer, or, or even new evangelical ways uh, are, are perfectly fine as a traditionalist approach uh, with, with religious tint, as, as in the case of Jair Bolsonaro, right? So I cannot so say it's, that... it's a, uh, Let me, uh, sorry, interrupt. We did a show with Moises Naim last week. Mm -hmm. He has a new book out, The Revenge of Power. His previous book before that was uh, The End of Power. So... Moises has certainly uh, changed his position on power. Might another way be defining illiberalism as simply just a, a focus, a lust for power? It seems as if it's summarized perhaps by the Silicon Valley venture capitalist Peter Thiel and his lust for power, an absence of ideology, just a focus on seizing power, almost Leninist in its singular focus on power. But there is there is certainly a power maximization and self-perpetuation agenda here. But unlike with the people who do it by tanks, a, a proper liberal democrat will do it through through legal means and uh, to to quote another author Andras Shayo, through ruling by cheating. Uh, and, and the facade of democratic legitimization in the form of regular elections has been key to, to the success. It's also important to have popular mobilization of the kind that doesn't hold the 
elective leader accountable in any particular way. So think about a very public mutual admiration society uh, where, where, you act, where, where the leader actually doesn't have to respond to public outrage or and definitely doesn't have to step down because of, of an election. But I mean, how, long, how far does this go? Would you include Boris Johnson in this, for example? I mean, he didn't step down over the various scandals over COVID. He doesn't strike me as being particularly liberal. He's a little bit of a charlatan. But where do you draw the line in this illiberalism? I think I'd, I'd take you to task about the, the extent to, to, to which illiberal practices prevail in, in, in the UK today. The attacks on the courts, the reform of judicial review, uh, is, is definitely a, 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 an illiberal practice that is, that is practiced uh, by, by these actors. Uh, limiting university autonomy with, with uh, calling academic freedom uh, to, to be defended by legislation and by government, according to a specific definition, is, is certainly uh, a fine liberal practice. And, and, and so is conducting public procurement in a manner. Let's bring uh, Massey in. Massey, do you agree with uh, uh, Renata here? I mean, at what point does illiberalism simply become a bucket to include people as, and I, I kind of asked you this before, just simply to include people you don't like, like Boris Johnson, who does stuff that offends liberals and academics. Okay. If we compare it with the previous ideological war between capitalist democracy and communist dictatorship, there was also not a very clear line. Yes, we had Italy, which was... Well, uh, I, I don't know. No, I mean... The communists definitely, and but even social democrats. I mean, you can you can almost draw a parallel uh, to today's U.S., which is today's country on the on the fence. Uh, and uh, Mitch McConnell is uh, it's the is the social democrats. He's torn between whether to go with MAGA, who are the communists. Right. No, I take your point. No, it's a fair yeah. point. It's a good point, actually. I, I, so I didn't understand before. I think in that sense, perhaps you're right. So you're saying there's a lot of gray area that a, a Mitch McConnell or a Boris Johnson, it's... But it, my point is that it's not new. It, it happened during the last ideological conflict as well. There, wasn't, there was a lot of gray line and, and the, 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 the Western left, the Western social democracy was always... A little bit. I mean, in the UK, people were terribly worried when Labour was was winning. Whether they will go in cahoots with. So with you believe in this new? You 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 talked about this ideological conflict between what illiberalism and liberalism? Is that how democracy versus autocracy? Joe has it right. Okay. Well, let, let me have. Uh, let, I, I want Renata back on this because you touched on this earlier. Orban has made a big point of um, arguing, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that you can be an illiberal Democrat. Do you reject that? If you're an illiberal, are you by definition against democracy? Well, I mean, Orban benefits from being re-elected regularly, uh, like clockwork. The elections are fixed, but he definitely does have uh, democratic legitimacy. Which cannot be uh, which cannot be debated away from him, whether he goes to to Brussels or
Maseri, I think we lost um, Renata for a minute. Oh, sorry, go on, Renata, continue. Himself refers to what he's doing is building an illiberal democracy or building an illiberal Christian democracy. So, so take him, take him to take it that they accept what he says he's doing, uh, because that's what we are in the business of. Well, let's go back to the, the core story here of Putin. Um, as I said in the introduction, uh, Francis Fukuyama has a big piece in the FT this weekend on Putin's war on the liberal order. Do you see Putin, um, Renata, as the crown prince of a liberalism, the founding figure, the the pioneer of all this? Well, he definitely he definitely took it two steps or three steps uh, further than uh, than we have seen it done. Uh, starting a, a war is is towards the extreme end of the spectrum, but much of the as inspiration that you that you see in Hungary and other places is certainly coming from from Putin uh if you think about the the switch which they did with with Medvedev to to switch between president and prime minister to keep him in in the play uh in the game a little bit through legal engineering is a good example demonizing civil society and the media as foreign agents is spreading like wildfire from from Israel to Hungary and around the world so there is plenty of, of uh, there is plenty that you that you see also in the oligar oligarchic structures of of amassing personal wealth uh, through running the government uh, that is followed elsewhere uh, with 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 great enthusiasm and great success and the voters re-elect these fine people it seems. We had Peter Pomerantz on the show yesterday, the Washington DC-based sort of media critic of, of, of Putin. And he argued when we talked that the Ukraine really isn't about the Ukraine. It's about a, the bigger picture of a Russian attempt to perhaps recolonize parts of Eastern Europe. Do you agree? Well, it's certainly it's certainly extremely scary, and uh, there is good good reason why why you have plenty of fear in the Baltics. Uh, as we as we speak, there is plenty of fear in 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 Poland, and let's not forget that that while we are concentrating on 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 Ukraine, there is there is a bit of a deal going on, uh, trying to put the finishing touches on on nuclear arms control in Iran, uh, where Russia is, is trying to, to reset the stage for a, for a new deal and potentially making, uh, making nuclear arms control in, in nuclear control in, in Iran uh, fall apart the night before the deal was meant to, to be signed. I want to bring Massey back in here. Uh, Massey, you mentioned a lot of this stuff isn't new. I was struck by a piece uh, by Simon Sharma, the historian in the FT over the weekend, saying that Putin's plans is failing in ways he could not have imagined. The hardware of the Russian invasion may be operational, but the software of its narrative has seized up. Are we back to the old inefficiencies argument of the Cold War, that we're more efficient than they are? Of course, we are more efficient. It's just that, just as in Cold War, it took a lot, lot of time for those uh, inefficiencies to crash the system. And 
we don't necessarily know whether it's an inevitable historical process that inefficiencies would crash a system like this, because what if there yeah, wasn't... Yeah, yeah, yeah. inevitable historical processes is a term that isn't used outside Central Europe. Well... No, I'm teasing you, but... Uh... No, no, I, I, I get it. I, and it, it's, it's good. But, like, that's precisely my point. That I, I object to this idea that we are that inefficient autor autocratic regimes are destined to, to, to fail because we see, for example, Venezuela, uh, how re how resistant is... Well, I don't, know. I don't know. If you talk failed. to Moises Naim, who was a minister there, he might have a different take, but, uh, but, but I see your point. I, I, I don't think there is... I don't think there is an obvious uh, case that it, it needs to fail because brute power is still doable even if you are very inefficient. Let's uh, go back to a Renata, the, um, the author of the Routledge uh, handbook on illiberalism. How much, uh, how, how much of the current public debate, if, if that's the right word, division between liberals and illiberalism reminds you of the Cold War. It certainly, Massey seems to think that history is in some ways repeating itself. Do you believe that? Well, there are, there are elements of the history that are repeating themselves and there are elements of lessons that, that have not been learned. Uh, the, one of the, the biggest lessons is that you can't run a constitutional democracy with a disengaged, inactive or apathetic citizenry. Uh, an, another uh, uh, another another big lesson of, of of the Cold War is that you you do have to to learn not only about the successes and and the linear narrative pro, narrative of, of progress where market economy and and democracy go go hand in hand but also also alternatives and especially failures that didn't work out. An important lesson from, from the handbook is that illiberal Democrats or the practitioners of illiberal democracy, even in, in Central Europe, uh, are not particularly strong on market economy. They, they, they run, especially in, in, in Hungary, uh, a centrally controlled regime uh, which is which is full of uh, not only self-dealing and oligarchic practices, but also price price fixing and individual deals with foreign investors. Instead is this, of um, Renata, we we did a show with Catherine Belton, who wrote a book on KGB capitalism. She's being sued now in the London courts. The FT report, a very brave woman. Um, capitalism, of course, was the defining thing, at least in. Uh, on the surface that, that that distinguished the Cold War, there's no opposition amongst the liberals to capitalism. It's a kind of capitalism. I was struck by a, another piece in the CNN today about how Russian elites are scrambling to sell their big houses and, and boats. Um, so no one's in disagreement, are they, about capitalism itself? It's just how capitalism operates. Is that fair? Well, they certainly they certainly take advantage of of certain features of capitalism, and and if I understand correctly, Boris Johnson is coming under some pressure, even in the UK Parliament, to 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 try to get some of the the oligarchs uh, who who make the the 
the British economy run to, to be out in, in the open. So certain features of capitalism do serve them very well, uh, including, including offshoring, and, uh, but also other practices from, from socialist economies. Uh, centrally planned and, and well nationalized uh, also do help with, with amassing personal wealth. And don't forget that in, in the Hungarian case, the source of personal wealth is, is not oil or gas or other rare natural minerals. It's taxpayer money that is redistributed by the European Union. Let me bring Marseille back in. What's your take on the place of capitalism in this debate, capitalism was the core issue on the surface in the Cold War. Uh, does it remain a piece of the ideological debate now? Or is everyone in agreement? Was Fukuyama right in that sense that history ended in terms of the debate about the value of free markets and capitalism? So as I mentioned earlier, I, I, I think that the, the, the main difference, the main fault line is about it's about privilege it's about whether we want to have a truly equal society or we, do we want to keep um, certain groups privileged versus other groups and of course privilege implies inequality of wealth but not only of wealth also of other um, goods uh, status respect rights safety so, so, so I don't think that it's as central. Um, what about the is. issue of race here um, and multinationalism and ethnicity? You wrote an interesting piece in Politico over the weekend, quite a controversial piece, uh, co-written with Yusuf uh, Akbar from the Central European uh, University, entitled "Of Race and War." what the crisis in Ukraine tells us about ourselves. Uh, you're pretty critical of the perhaps overt racism now in the way in which Central Europe is embracing Ukrainian refugees, whereas in the past they've rejected refugees from Iran, Syria, Afghanistan, North Africa. We accepted the, 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 in one week the number of refugees that we were saying it's unsustainable in a year in 2015. So I, I, I don't see how we can be not critical of what we did then, not what we are doing now. What we are doing now is the right thing to do. But it, uh, it the problem is that if we are having this racialized myopia, it, it actually also hurts us um, because the rules of the game, uh, the global liberal order, does not depend on the skin color of the victims. And, well, it shouldn't anyway. No, it doesn't. When you when you break the rule, you break the rule. Right, and we did a show even about uh, we did a show about how uh, Syria, uh, Putin's Syria intervention was the sort of was the beta version of what he's doing in Ukraine, but just the people of different skin, so people were less obsessed with this in the West. How about 1999 and the Chechen war? 60,000 people died. Uh, and if we, if we, Putin was basically because of this became the president, uh, it paved his way to the presidency. If we imposed one-tenth of the sanctions uh, 23 years ago, 
in response to this completely brutal and inhumane uh, war that he waged at the time with 80,000 soldiers and 60,000 people dead. Um, this is, by the way, I want to remind all the uh, viewers, Chechenia is in Europe. It's a European nation. So this, when we say, oh, this is like the first uh, super bloody war in Europe, let's think about Chechenia, let's think about the Balkan Wars, um, uh, let's, let's think about Georgia, uh, I, I, and, uh, and, 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 and then even beyond this, in today's world, the, the, the rule book is common, whether you break it in Syria or you break it in Europe, it, it's not 1930s anymore. We, we have one. Well, I hope it's not the 1930s. Lots of debate about that. I, I, I want to wrap up because I want Renata to have time to go to the rally. But I want to come back, Renata. You're the co-editor of the Routledge Handbook of Illiberalism. How core is racism or implicit or explicit racism to illiberalism? Can you be an illiberal without being a racist? Well, you, well, you cert certainly can, although because of, of the famous friend-enemy divisions on which populists run, uh, you, you have, whether it's racism, xenophobia, or anti-Semitism, you, you certainly have those elements. What's an important feature of illiberalism is that very often the, the privileged white man re-emerge as the victims of the cosmopolitan liberal elites. The, the prime victim who, who has been suppressed uh, by, by the elites and the establishment has been President Trump, of course. Uh, but, but don't forget Prime Minister Orban, who is one of the most oppressed Christians and fighting against oppressed Christians around the world. And, and at the moment, in, in a radio address last Friday, he explained that although there are victims of sanctions elsewhere. Hungary is certainly suffering from the sanctions imposed uh, by, by the European Union because the neighbors have to pick up the pieces. So what is an important feature here is not simply racism, but, but also the type of, of narcissism and the sense of victimhood, which is very often, very often expressed by those who are the winners of illiberal democracy that are the top the, the higher classes and the most privileged who adopted the, the language of suffering and, and victimhood uh, in, in the process. The one thing that liberalism seems to do well is charismatic leaders. I mean, maybe not so much Orban, uh, to some extent, Putin, Trump, of course. Is one grain of optimism, perhaps from the Ukrainian crisis, that progressives have found um, a leader in Zelensky, um, who is inspirational and not illiberal. Uh, there's a New York Times piece comparing Zelensky and Trump, two performers, one hero. Um, can we take anything positive out of the fact that Zelensky has become this pin-up, or should we be a little suspicious of this, given the way in which uh, Orban, for example, was originally embraced by progressives. George Soros paid for him to go to Oxford. Uh, the same with some of the Serbian nationalist leaders. Um, what's your take on how Zelensky has become this iconic figure in the West and perhaps in the Ukraine? Well, I mean, certainly he knows he knows how to to operate in front of an audience. But I, you please don't 
explain away Orban's charisma. He is quite quite a, a bit charismatic. What I think is crucial to the success of charismatic leadership is is the the type of access to the audience in in rallies, which is not not prohibited by uh, by COVID or other re restrictions when it comes to to demonstrations and also media access. And uh, very, very. So it's it's it has been extremely crucial that the European Union put serious bans on on Russian disinformation and and propaganda, including Russia Russia Today, to to keep the media space free of disinformation. Also also in in the West, because that opens up opportunities for uh, for the type of message that that Zelensky is trying to to communicate. And don't forget that apart from his charisma, he does have opportunities to actually deliver an extremely strong message. And and uh, whenever he speaks to to leaders in the council or the security council, right? So and he that's why your your skills are needed for for those two seconds. Charisma alone, however, will not solve this if you if you don't manage to to have grassroots mobilization on on the ground. There is no way. To, to to try to use democratic processes to to turn uh, against charismatic illiberal leaders but i mean much i personally certainly has lessons also from from poland about the grassroots and the charismatic level of leadership yeah uh, being... i was saying perhaps you might say something about um grassroots charisma zelensky perhaps using the polish model um uh, in, yeah. in terms of Again, charisma is, overrated. Perhaps charisma, from a is under, overrated Ka charisma is totally overrated. I agree with uh, with, with with Renata. It's one. It's one. Of course, it does. It doesn't hurt, but fundamentally, Donald Tusk is very charismatic. Barack Obama was the most charismatic, and he didn't manage to get uh, Hillary uh, elected with all, all his charisma and all his uh, power to convince. Mm, uh, and Jaroslav Kaczynski, charisma, uh, it's, it's impossible to hear, to listen to this guy for more than two minutes. Um, so I, I, I honestly think it's much more about, um, and, and I may be an outlier here, I think it's about delivering the goodies to uh, very targeted groups of, uh, of of voters who know exactly what they are doing and what they are choosing. Um, uh, and th there was this uh, really interesting study um, uh, recently done um, about uh, exposing right and left-wing voters to opposite messages. And actually right-wing voters, when they were exposed to liberal messages, became more right-wing. So, 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 so the, it, the, people fear equality. People fear uh, those who used to be oppressed to be no, to be no longer oppressed, uh, and and that's why they are choosing people who 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 want to make America great again. So and finally, um, you guys are in Budapest and Vienna, much closer to the Ukrainian struggle. We have a, a large audience, people, particularly in America, who. Who, who want to be able to do something, very briefly, what can people do? What advice would you give for people who are traumatized by what's happening and want to help in some way? What suggestions would you make to a Western European or a North American audience? 
Renata. I mean, at, at this particular moment, when, when we have a, a refugee situation, uh, there is it, it's extremely important to, to provide material support to the refugees. Uh, when it comes to when it comes to university age uh, populations, you do have to think of supporting them to to study either in Europe or in North America and to to be able to finish their to finish to be able to finish their degrees. Uh, and ultimately, uh, what we are hoping for is a relatively quick end to this crisis and and putting a lot of effort and energy into into rebuilding Ukraine uh, once once peace is, is restored, which I do hope is in in sight. Uh, because otherwise, We're assuming there are assuming uh, the Russians leave. Yeah, otherwise, um, otherwise. You can't keep up hope. You are optimistic, uh, Renata. I'm not sure I share your optimism. Uh, um, Massey, finally, what can people do? Renata put it well. The people can uh, can support humanitarian causes at the moment, but but the, but the biggest question, Andrew, is when are we going to start facing those threats uh, to? Uh, democracy and to the world in more general think climate change at the time when you actually can do something i, th I think that's the most because you are it, it's the second uh, show that you kindly invited me on and you are asking what can be done uh, i i happen to have a, um, a very premature cancer death in my family and it's a little bit like asking a stage for cancer patient what can you do now it's simply too late we should have been doing something year ago, two years ago, five years ago, twenty-three years ago, as I told you about Chechnya, uh, and and it's 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 so frustrating, uh, Andrew, to to constantly being asked this question uh, five years or twenty years too too late. I, 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 it, yeah. it, well, it, I'm sorry to. It's not your fault, but you. But yeah, we. Yeah, no, I take the point, but. You know, we only, we as humans, it's not just liberals or illiberals, we as humans only seem to be able to deal with crises when they happen. We, we're not very good in the long term. Maybe that's another conversation we can have. Anyway, I want to thank both of you for taking some time out of your Sunday. In Vienna, uh, Maciek Kizalowski and uh, in, uh, in Budapest, uh, uh, Renata Uitz. And uh, Renata, you can go to that um, democracy uh, election event now. Thank you so much. And we'll have you back on the show as this crisis continues to unfold. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.